the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sayeth the Scripture, a ministry of Orlando Bible Church, 4505 East Colonial Drive, Orlando, where Scott Letzring is the pastor. Orlando Bible Church is in need of your support to keep this ministry thriving. Send your contribution to Orlando Bible Church, 4505 East Colonial Drive, Orlando, 32803. If you are searching for a church home, come worship with us tomorrow. Sunday Bible School begins at 945 in the morning. Worship at 11 a.m. Or for more information on what we believe, you can go online to orlandobiblechurch.com. Now, here's Pastor Letzring. For the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1-9. Welcome to What Sayeth the Scripture, the radio voice of the Orlando Bible Church. I am Pastor Scott Letzring, and with me here in the studio today are my brothers in Christ and good friends, uh, Yul Argado and Clay Smith. Gentlemen, nice to have you. It is good to be here. Thank you, Pastor Scott, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Amen. We are so grateful, listeners, for the opportunity to spend the next hour with you. As a reminder, we are a live program. That means if you have a Bible question, we would love for you to give us a call. We would love you to ask it on air, and by the grace of God, we will attempt to answer the question from the Bible. And as we've said before, we'll say it again gladly. If we do not know the answer, or we don't have time to give a proper answer— then we will circle back with you uh, with an answer from the Bible when we're able to. So we would love for you to give us a call if you have a question. That number to reach us here at the station is 407-682-9595. If you are looking for a local church here in Central Florida to visit and maybe become a member of, we would love to have you come pay us a visit. Again, if you want to find out more about the Orlando Bible Church. We encourage you to visit our church's website, orlandobiblechurch.com, and there you'll be able to find the church's phone number, the church's address, and the church's service times, along with other information. And if you want to kind of get a flavor of past messages that we have spoken from the pulpit at the Bible Church, we encourage you to visit our channel on YouTube, our YouTube channel. Simply search Orlando Bible Church there, and you'll be able to find us. And you can listen to previous ministries from the church service. Again, though, if you have a question for today's program during this hour, give us a call here at the station, 407-682-9595. Gentlemen, anything else you want to add? If anybody has questions or comments, I encourage them to um, contact us through the radio or emails or yeah. write a letter. Yeah, during the week even, yeah. Yes. Exactly. We've had that happen too where they've sent, they found out the address of the church through our website and they've sent in a letter with some questions and uh, that's always neat too. And, and then, of course, you can reach out to the church, uh, church's number. Again, that number's on our church's website. And you can ask us a question during the course of the week and we can save that for the answer, giving it on the on the air. And that's how I came to find the church by calling and actually speaking to you and asking questions and Amen. Yes, indeed. So and that's that's how I <laughs> became a member of the church too, is when I 6 months of drilling Pastor Scott. <laughs> oh, oh. No, it was it, both both situations have been a tremendous blessing. Different situations, but uh, again, the Lord is the one who draws and we thank God for that. And Amen. Don't be embarrassed to ask or yeah. because you there's probably other listeners that have the same questions or uh comments. So exactly. it's, it's nice to share and find the answers through the scriptures. Absolutely, you. That's that's true. Amen. So with that said, friends, let's take our Bibles and let us turn to the book of Revelation. We are going through a book study of Revelation. We're in chapter 3. 
and we are specifically in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, looking at the sixth of the seven local churches there that Christ has a particular message for. We know that these were literal local churches that existed in first century Christianity. They're located in an area known in Bible times as Asia Minor. That would translate to modern-day Turkey. And so Christ has a specific message for each of these seven churches. But we also have seen that though it's for the particular local assembly, it is actually also for the entire body. So these are not private letters. Rather, these are public letters. And obviously, it's part of the canon of Scripture. And as far as the overall view or overview of Revelation, Revelation is in three main parts. The first part we've already covered, uh, that was chapter 1. Specifically in chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord instructs the Apostle John to write the things which he has seen. The things that he has seen in context are the specifics of the risen, glorified Christ. And that's what you have there in chapter 1. And then, also there in Revelation 1.19, the Lord then says to John, write the things which are. The things which are pertain to the seven local churches, which are in Asia Minor. Again, those are the churches we're studying in chapters 2 and 3. So it deals with those seven churches and specifically the instructions that Christ gave to those seven churches. And then finally, the final section of Revelation is the biggest section, and that begins in chapter 4, verse 1. Back in Revelation one nineteen, the Lord then said to John that he's to write the things which must be hereafter. And that will begin our study in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 22 and verse 5. Now, both the front end of the book and the back end of the book are set off with some introductions and some conclusions. We call it the prologue, Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8, and the epilogue, Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, through the end of that chapter, the end of the book. So we are in the second section of our study, but we're looking at the sixth church now, having looked at the first five already. So we hope that's clear. And we just want those of you maybe who are trying to catch up with where we are, that hopefully was a help. So with that said, let's familiarize ourselves with this particular letter to this particular church. And so what does Christ say, or specifically, what does John write through divine inspiration pertaining to the words and the message that Christ had to the church of Philadelphia? And let's read that there. You'll... Revelation chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. I know thy works, behold... I'm sorry, verse 7. We should have started verse 7. My bad. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold... I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown." Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. So we started the study of this particular church last week. If you're with us, friends, last Saturday, we begin to look at it. And if you've also been following along with us, tracking with us, you know that we typically take this four or this eightfold pattern, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that eightfold pattern are as follows. You have a designation, you have a description, you have a commendation, you have a rebuke, you have an exhortation, you have consequences, you have a general call, and then you have promises to the overcomer. 
And so we've looked at some of those already. We saw the the location or the designation. This is written to the local assembly in Philadelphia. All these seven churches are in, again, like we've said, Asia Minor. And if you were to look at a Bible map of that time period, you would see how they are kind of in a horseshoe uh, shape, but they're somewhat nearby, if you will, uh, to one another. And then we saw the description that Christ gives of himself to this particular local church. And those are three primary things. There in verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, These things saith he that is holy. You see, Jesus Christ is holy. He doesn't just perform things that are set apart, things that are holy. He is holy. That speaks of his character, his nature. And all of the attributes of God kind of flow out of this foundational attribute. God is holy. That's so important. And then he says, describing himself to this local church, he says, he is also the one that is true. So we believe that the statement of his holy character It speaks of his character, his nature, whereas when he says he that is true, it speaks more of his actions. Now, of course, he is true, and he can only do that which is true, Mm -hmm. only do that which is righteous and just. And so that's a wonderful uh, promise and a wonderful thing to be reminded of. Because, you know, sometimes Christians in our flesh, we might think, well, things aren't working the way that I I think they should be going. Things are kind of difficult, and they're not... I'm trying to serve the Lord, and and I'm having obstacle after obstacle, you know, and sometimes we even think in our heads, and usually don't say it out loud, but we think it, oh, no, God's made a mistake, but God does never make a mistake. Mm -hmm. He's perfect. He's holy. He's true. And Jesus was reminding this local church that he is the one who's true, because things, as we'll see, were challenging, to say the least. They were very difficult. Uh, They were under great struggles. While their struggles, their persecutions were of a different nature of, say, the church of, of Smyrna, Smyrna was facing physical persecutions, even martyrdom. We know that from our study of the second church back in chapter 2. But this particular church, Philadelphia, the focus is not so much on martyrdoms, but rather the persecutions of these false teachers. And so... We've seen that. Then the Lord says, thirdly, in the description of himself there in verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, He that hath the key of David, that, notice, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. And that's what we're going to get into today, friends. Uh, What does he mean by that? Telling the church at Philadelphia that he, reminding them that he is the one who has the key of David, and he's the one that opens doors and no make those doors. And we'll we'll that here or fully. But we do have a caller on line one already. Actually, this one is an off-air question from a caller. This question comes from Lynette, and she wants to know about the scapegoat. Okay, the scapegoat. Excellent. So uh, the scapegoat is found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Lynette, thank you for the question. And part of, let's see, I think we might find it in, gentlemen, in Leviticus. Uh, Let me take a look here. Let's try Leviticus 16. I could be off on this. Uh, Leviticus, I'm looking for the chapter on the Passover. And Lynette, if we can't get it right off the top of our heads here, we will certainly circle back with you on this. But the idea is the Lord would have uh, one animal sacrificed, that blood is shed, that blood is applied, and then the scapegoat is released. So that other animal, what was it? 1610. Okay, it is chapter 16. Excellent. So go ahead and read that for us, Yule. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 10. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be present. Presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Okay, so both animals are very important in this part of the atonement. 
this part of the sacrificial system here for the Jewish people, because they both reflected something very important, that the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, would perform and has performed, of course, we know, looking back at the cross. So for context's sake, that was verse number 10, correct? Mm-hmm. Let's back up and... To five? Yeah, and let's let's read five through ten. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for the scapegoat into the wilderness. Excellent. So that's very important. So what do we have here? We have two animals. Uh, one is going to be put to death. Um, and this is all part of that sin offering for the nation of Israel. And the first animal, again, is sacrificed, uh, put to death, they're slain. But the other was sent into the, the wilderness. wilderness. And what was that teaching them? Well, the live goat that went in, was set free, in that sense, into the wilderness, symbolized the removal of Israel's sins. And part of that whole sacrificial uh, atonement, if you will, and very important. So verse 11 says, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself <coughs> and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So what we have here is before the high priest, Aaron, could go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the whole nation, he had to first uh, make sure he was clean. clean. He had to first you know, do this sacrificial uh, circumstance or, or sacrifice, I should say, for his sins and for the sins of his own household. Then he could uh, be qualified, if you will, as the servant of the Lord to to make sacrifice for the people. Now, what's unique about this when we get to the book of Hebrews we see that Christ did not have to make a sacrifice for own, for his own sins because he is without sin. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and so, but he has once for all, forever, uh, been that atonement, that substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so provision has been made for every single person on this planet. Now, God's not going to force anybody to get saved. They have a free will. But they must, by God's grace, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ before it's eternally too late, placing their trust in him, the Son of God, the one who paid their sin debt in full and who rose again the third day. And they must make that decision. They must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. before they die. And the promise is if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be saved. God will give them the gift of eternal life. And they're going to be a new creature in Christ. All these wonderful blessings will be true of them. So, Lynette, great question. That's what this scapegoat here, at least in Leviticus 16, is all about. It's part of the whole picture of the atoning sacrifice. And we know that these animals in the days of Moses, in the days of Aaron, could never take away any sense. Rather, they were the system in which Jewish believers were under the law, and when they had defiled themselves, they would have to follow the instructions of the Mosaic Law. In this case, this is that once-a-year event, the Day of Atonement, if I'm thinking of the right chapter here, and this is exactly what the nation as a whole needed. And God would, again, kind of kick the can, if you will, and the, the people would be considered whole, or the people could be, would be considered uh, covered, if you will, and until the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as John the Baptist called him, right? In John yep. chapter 1, behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And that taking away is that picture of release 
and the releasing of that scapegoat is just that very, very important uh, part of the overall picture here and what the Israelites were to do. So a great question. Hopefully that wasn't confusing uh, to anybody. All right, with that said, friends, let's go back to the book of Revelation, please. Revelation chapter 3. And we have looked at the first two points, uh, the designation, Christ speaking to the church at Philadelphia, the description, we just talked about that, those three specifics of this particular description of himself there in verse 7, that he is holy, he is true, and he hath the key of David, the key of David which means he's able, he has the authority to open a door and to shut a door, right? Mm -hmm. And praise God that when he opens a door, guess what? No No man man can shut it. it. (laughs) Or when he shuts a door, guess what? No man can open it. So what does all this mean? Well, simply what it means, we believe, is a door of opportunity and service for his children, for his people. Because we look at verse 8, Jesus says, I know thy works, which, again, he said to every single one of the other churches. You go to his message to the saints at Ephesus or to the saints at Smyrna or Pergamos or Thyatira or Sardis or the last one, Laodicea, and even to Philadelphia. He says, I know thy works and praise God. He is the all-knowing one. It reminds me of Peter when in one of the post-resurrection appearances, when Christ appears before them on the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, where Peter and some of the disciples following him went a-fishing, right? Mm -hmm. And it was in that chapter of John, chapter 21, where the Lord, having a conversation with Peter, uh, and he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Right? And then that third time when the Lord asked Peter that, Peter responds in essence, Lord, you know I love thee, for you knoweth all things. And that reminds me, of the truth of Christ when he says, I know thy works. You know, he's the one who knows all things. Christian, he knows everything about you. He knows our hearts. Amen, he does. He knows not just the outward, he knows the inward. He knows every single thing. And that's why he alone is the one who's qualified at the future judgment seat of Christ, which is a time of the judgment of believers, not their sins, but their works. And that's the time when we will be possibly be rewarded for those works that are worthy of Christ, done through the power of Christ, and for the glory of Christ, you know, those works will be rewarded. They will remain, in other words. And so, but he's the one who knows all about them. What a blessing. But notice what he says there in verse 8. He says, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. So what is he reminding these believers of? He's reminding them of the fact that he is the one who opens those doors of opportunity of service and ministry. And this is important to be reminded for them because we learned there in verse 8 that they were of little strength. And friends, guess what that means? It means they were of little strength. And I think that's encompassing with the fact that they probably were fewer in number compared to maybe other testimonies. They were certainly fewer in finances. They didn't have as many financial opportunities, maybe. They were a small, that looked like, from man's vantage point, an insignificant testimony. But Jesus says, no, not at all. In fact, this is the only church we'll learn. Not the only. It's it's one of two churches of the seven that the Lord does not have a specific rebuke for. And so when we do come to number four in our pattern, uh, his rebuke, there's none specific In other words, he did not issue a particular rebuke to this church at Philadelphia. Doesn't mean they were a perfect church, but they certainly were a church walking in the light they had. They were a church who were faithful. And, uh, of course, there are several things he commends them for. And we see that there in verse 8 and also verse 10. We'll mention those four things, and we're going to include... The first one that we mentioned last week as something he commends them for, for thou hast a little strength. Now, that doesn't mean we should all kind of go out there and and try to manufacture that aspect. But the fact that they are of little strength was not something for them to be ashamed of. That's the idea. You see, because a lot of churches today are, aren't they? In fact, uh, many a times over the years as a pastor, 
you know, I meet another pastor and, and sometimes, not always, but in some cases that pastor say, well, how big is your church? And first of all, it's not my church, is it? <laughs> it's the Lord's church. Amen. And, and so, but some pastors are of that mentality. They're of the mentality of, of how big is your church? How many people do you have? You know, and there's nothing wrong with having people. There's nothing wrong with a church growing in numeric, you know, numerically. Uh, but is that how Christ defines a church that honors him? Obviously not, because this church was of a little strength. Mm-hmm. And and so the key is, is that church, no matter how many people they have in it, are they holding fast to his word? In other words, the are second thing faithful? he commends them for, are they faithful? Amen, brother. That's right, Clay. He says, secondly, he says, you have kept my word. That's what he wants. His it's the quality or the quantity. Bingo. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Exactly. You'll, you've kept my word. And then he says, you have not denied my name. And then in verse 10, he says that you have kept the word of my patience. That speaks of endurance. That speaks of uh, kind of being faithful unto the end in very difficult situations. Uh, but back to this open door, the, the fact that Christ is the one who opens these doors of ministry, these doors of opportunity for his local churches. These opportunities of service. He's the one who opens the doors. He's the one who shuts the doors. And that's a tremendous encouragement because, you know, I'm sure the surrounding even maybe churches or even people were saying, you are of no significance. Next year, next month, you're going to be, you know, you don't even count number one. And you're not going to lie. You're not going to continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and boy, what a blessing that the Lord is the one who opens those doors. And I can just state out of personal testimony, personal experience, having been privileged to be part of the local testimony of the of the Orlando Bible Church, which well predates me. I mean, the Orlando Bible Church, by the grace of God, was founded in the very early 1950s. Wow. And by God's grace, the doors are still open today in 2022. And over the years, there's been a larger number of people that attend and there's been a fewer number that attend and it it kind of fluctuates and that happens. But you know who is always faithful the whole time? God is. And when he gives you that open door of opportunity, he's the one who keeps that door open or he's the one who shuts that door. What he wants us to do with the opportunities he gives us is to be faithful. You said it earlier, Clay, to be faithful, to be uh, obedient to his word, to keep his word, not to deny his name. To walk in his light. To do it for his glory. Amen. To do it for his glory. So we have the usage of this concept being faithful with these open doors of opportunity, these open doors of ministry. Take your Bibles, friends. Turn in them, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. And notice what the Apostle Paul says here in his conclusion. He's coming to an end of this first epistle under divine inspiration. And he tells them in verse 8 of chapter 16, 1 Corinthians, he says, I will tarry. Tarry simply means to remain. I will remain. I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, why would he remain in Ephesus? Because he tells them, verse 9, by the way, it was from Ephesus that the letter to the saints at Corinth was written. And at least the first letter. And notice what he says, why he has to remain in Ephesus, because something the Lord had done there. And by the way, you read about the events of that, of his ministry in Ephesus in the book of Acts, chapter 19, primarily. And so you'll read verse 9, please. First Corinthians sixteen nine. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if you read Acts 19, you'll see, wow, that's exactly what it was. First off, who opened that door? We know who did that. The Lord did. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, there's this great door and effectual that's open unto me. I think it says there in that passage there in Acts chapter 19, that at least in one particular area, this school, if you will, of Tyrannius, uh, he used that as a platform, as a headquarter to have the gospel message go forth. And he used it as a great opportunity to disciple Let's go to Acts 19, see if we can't find that passage. Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, 
And again, the Apostle Paul reaches the city of Ephesus. And notice, if you would, uh, let's see here. Read verse number 26 first there, please. You. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they do know that they be no gods which are made with hands. Okay, so let's back up now, because what were they talking about? They're talking about, you know, Paul had been in that city, uh, Ephesus, for quite some time. And so when you back up, you go to a verse like verses 8 and 9. Look at those two verses. Acts 19, verses 8 and 9. And he went into the synagogue and, and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Okay, so he's speaking to primarily Jewish people there who were located in the city of Ephesus and were attending the Jewish synagogue in that city. And he's showing them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. And, of course, the kingdom of God is something that is a topic that's very, very meaningful to a Jew, certainly in Paul's day, an Orthodox Jew. Verse 9, though, what does it say there? But when diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So that door of opportunity, which in this case, he had three months of an open door to go into that Jewish synagogue and to try to convince from Scripture, persuade from Scripture to the unbelieving Jewish people that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. Uh, We see that the reaction, at least of the multitude there, is they believe not. And their hearts were hardened, right? And so they rejected the gospel. And so that door of opportunity, the three months there in spending every Saturday, you know, on the on the Sabbath day, typically is what he would do. He'd go into the synagogue. That door closed, but another door opened. And the story that he is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I think, begins with this aspect here in verse 9 that you just read. So what does he do? He sets apart certain disciples, not just every single Christian, but those who are disciples, those who are faithful followers of Christ. And notice he says he's disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannius. And notice it says in verse 10 that he continues in that area, that space, for the next two years. Verse 10. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So, like I said, this was a great headquarters, if you will, of this particular ministry. And it was an open door. God, Christ himself, had uh, had opened this door, and Paul and others with him were faithful in going through that door and fulfilling what the Lord had called them to do. Now, it's in this chapter, as you keep going, that those of the city are going to become very hostile toward Paul and toward his missionary team. And you read that verse, one of those verses already, because they were stepping on some toes. Because in particular, in the city of Ephesus, there was this temple, the Temple of Diana. That's one of the old, it's no longer standing, of course, but that back in that day was one of the wonders of the world. And they had all kind of pagan teaching about this false goddess Diana and the shrine of Diana. And when you read this chapter, many are going to cry out, great is the god or the goddess Diana. And so notice it says, for example, verse 28. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Okay. And so now, verse 29, the whole city is in confusion. They're filled with confusion. Also, and, also too, they were, uh, they're, they're making their profits from the, the temple. Exactly. Making of the, uh, yeah. Yep. So exactly. If he's There's telling a lot them, more don't, don't do that, he's like, you're messing with our money now. You're, you're hurting the pocketbook. Exactly, brother. And so you, you have this going on. So that, that's just a quick sampling of, of what persecution, types of persecution they endured. So back to 1 Corinthians 16. What Paul says is exactly what we read about if we were to take more time and read the whole chapter of Acts 19. 
He says, for a great door and effectual one is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. And indeed, we just read about one such adversary that he again faced. So the point is, is these open doors that Christ is talking about to the church at Philadelphia are doors of ministry, doors of opportunity that he, the Lord himself, is the one who opens that no man can shut. When it was time for Paul to move on from Ephesus to the next location, the Lord would make that clear. And just a real quick note, you were talking about that was their money and their profit in selling those. It was the same thing with the Jewish people when God walked in, Jesus walked in and says, this is my temple, you've made it into a den of thieves. They were selling stuff there for money, too, sure. and that's what they really got upset about, because yeah. they were losing their income. Yeah, you, you, uh, <laughs> you again, affect somebody's earnings, you know, that they, they get upset. Mm-hmm. They get upset. And to, oh, and to, also, to make it relevant today... I've known throughout the couple of years that people, their churches, they've told me they've strayed away from the book because they're focused on the attendance mm-hmm. of the churches. I, oh, yeah. I've known many, several Christians are like, my church is not the same church that I, I attended to maybe 10, 15 years ago. Exactly. So it's like as a Christian, yeah. if you want to believe in the Bible or you want to be a staunch supporter, the, the passages that we're reading in Revelation, you have an obligation to stand for the truth. Amen. You know, and what happens, and you're right, even in maybe historically sound fundamental churches, they can go astray. Any one of us can go astray for that matter. And, you know, if if somebody's in the congregation that the pastor knows is a big contributor, you know, to the offering plate. Oh, they remain silent. Then, then and, and they yeah. know that person is, ups, is has a certain view on a particular mm-hmm. passage or what, then sometimes that, that preacher will become silent and and won't won't breach that subject matter. And that's sad and that's Amen. that's horrible because we are told as pastor teachers to preach the whole counsel of God. And if that offends some even believers, well that's what we need to do. We need to be faithful to the Lord. We're not trying to offend, but we have to be faithful to the word of God, to the scripture and and it's the truth that sets us free. Amen. And so uh, for the believer, that's exactly what we need. Anyways, but you're right. That's a great point, Yule. Let's go back. Actually, before we go back, let's go to a couple other passages. Uh, how about 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. And it's kind of neat to see Paul's prayer request here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And let's see. We want verse number... Let's see here. Verse number 12. Let's read that verse. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and the door was opened unto me of the Lord. So there, it's not so much the prayer. He is just making the point that a door was opened unto me. Notice he gives credit to whom? The Lord. The Lord is the one who opened that door. So when Paul made that trip to that particular city, Troas, to preach Christ, the gospel, the Lord opened this door of opportunity, this door of ministry. This is the, the verse I was thinking about, Colossians. And this is a prayer request of the Apostle Paul to the saints in Colossae. He asked them to pray for him, specifically for what? As we'll see there, Colossians chapter 4, verse number 3. Notice what Paul says to the believers in Colossae, in Colossians 4, verse 3. With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. Now, we realize that the Apostle Paul was where when he wrote this particular epistle? He was in jail. This was during his first Roman imprisonment, which lasted for two years. The years were roughly 60 to 62 A.D. And in that imprisonment, the Holy Spirit used Paul to write four of the books of the New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. This is one of them. But notice his prayer request to this local body at Colossae is pray for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance. Utterance is to speak forth that mystery. The mystery is the teachings concerning the body of Christ, the church, which is what you know, Christians need today. This is this is our rule book we Amen. use. You know, we're not to follow the same instruction manual that the Jews were to follow. You know, I don't want you to bring a a male lamb without spot or blemish tomorrow and expect me to uh, kill it for you and then to uh, 
sprinkle the blood or use my right index finger or whatever, you know, to, we're not going to do that. That's confusion. That's that's ridiculous because that's not for us. Though we can study that passage, Lynette had a great question. We can go back to those scriptures and see, and they're still for us today, but they're not to us. And so we want to write that by the word truth. But the instructions to the church, that's what we follow. That's what we live by in obedience to the Lord. And again, that does not mean we neglect the Old Testament scriptures like some preachers uh, do. Say, well, they're not they're of no value. No, that's not no. the case at all. They're part of the scripture. It's part of teaching the whole counsel of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly, uh, basically, uh, prepared and furnished and equipped. All right, so with that said, friends, now let's go back to Revelation chapter number three, please. In that number to reach us, if you have a Bible question, we have about 18 minutes left in today's program is 407-682-9595. Again, that number is 407-682-9595. So the Lord commends this church for those several things we mentioned. And uh, let's look at that again. Let's make sure we understand this. So when he says to the, excuse me, to the church of Philadelphia, the saints there, he is commending them for the fact that they have, though they're of little strength, they have kept his word. What's the word mean? It means the scriptures. By the way, how much of the canon, how much of the Bible had been written up to this point? Almost all of it. Almost Revelation. all of it. 65 of the 66 books were already completed. Keep that in mind. And I'm not saying that they had an opportunity to read all of them yet. You know, I don't know exactly how. I know they didn't have the printing press yet. They had to, you know, circulate the letters, and the scribes would 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 uh, carefully copy the the text and send forth. But they had the word of God, and the Lord says to them, He commends them in the fact that they had kept the word. They had honored Him how by obeying His word. Remember what the Lord told the apostles in the upper room discourse in John 15? He told them, continue ye in my love. And then it describes what he means by that. If you keep my commandments, that'd be the New Testament scriptures in the context, then you continue in my love. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Amen? Amen. And so this is something that Christ was well pleased with in the lives of these saints. They clearly were keeping his word, and the only way we as believers can truly keep the word of God is not through our power, amen, amen. but rather through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, "For uh, it goes on and it tells us how, let's look at that verse so we can get it right here. Philippians chapter number 2 and verse 13 uh, Clay, let's read this one. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 13. You see, Christian, we are never expected in our own power to obey the Lord and to keep his word. No, he knows that we can't, but praise the Lord, he can. We must allow him to do so. We must yield to his leading, to his empowering. And so what does this verse say, Philippians 2, 13? Clay? For it is God which worketh in you both to the will and to do of his good pleasure. Notice those two things, what Paul says there through divine inspiration. He says, it is God, Christian, who works in you. We get the English word energize or energy from this Greek word that's translated worketh there. So it's God who energizes you. How about that? It's God who empowers you. Notice he says first both to will. You mean the very desire itself comes from not within ourselves, but from the Holy Spirit who's within us, through the new nature, we could say. So it's God who works in us both to will and to do. First, the willingness, the desire, and to do. That's the accomplishing. And notice it's of his good pleasure. It's what pleases him. And so as we go back to Revelation chapter 3, he says to this church, these saints at Philadelphia, he says, in essence, I'm proud of you because you have kept my word. Now, they weren't done yet, and we're going to see that. He's going to tell them, he's going to exhort them uh, in verse 11, 
that they hold fast that which thou hast. What do they have? The word of God. He's talking about the scripture. Revelation 3, verse 11. But back to verse 8, he says, not only have you kept my word, he says, you have not denied my name. And that implies that there was uh, some conflict, to say the least. And indeed there is, there was, I should say, because in verse number 9, he says, behold, I will make them... And he identifies them as of the synagogue of Satan, which is not the first time he's used that term. Mm -hmm. We find it back uh, earlier in in chapter 2 when he's speaking to uh, another one of the churches. And he tells them who these, uh, really these false believers, false Christians, they're not true believers at all, who they are. He says, which say they are Jews and are not but do lie. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Judaizers, friends. He's talking about those of the Pharisees, for example, who uh, claim that in order to be saved, you have to place yourself under the law of Moses. You have to keep the law of Moses. Faith alone in Christ alone is not enough. You have to be circumcised. You have to do that. And so these are not, in Christ's eyes, true Jews. Do you know that a true Jew is one who, yes, number one, is a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's important because Abraham had more than one son. You can't just be a descendant of Ishmael. Mm-hmm. You have to be a descendant of Isaac. But you can't just be a descendant of one of Isaac's sons because he had twin boys. He had Esau and Jacob. If you're a descendant of Esau, well, that doesn't, you're, you're not an ethnical Jew. Uh, you, you are not a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, you have to be a descendant from one of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Then you are a physical Jew, but that doesn't classify in the sight of God as a true Jew, because a true Jew is one who, yes, is a physical descendant of one of the 12 tribes, but also one who's a believer, one who's placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, okay, Pastor Scott, show me some scripture. Well, we will. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and notice the last two verses of the chapter. Now, in the context, in the context, Paul is addressing basically humanity. In the first three, three and a half chapters of Romans, Paul is going to systematically go through the whole classification of all of humanity. He's going to talk about the the pagans at the end of chapter 1. And then as he makes his way into the beginning of chapter 2, he's going to talk about the moralist, the Gentile moralist, who looks down upon the homosexuals, the murderers of chapter 1. But he's going to say to both of those groups, guess what? You are under God's wrath. You lack the purchase, the perfect righteousness of Christ, so you are in need of justification. But then in chapter 2, Uh, Specifically, beginning in verse 17, he switches to a third group. And that third group is the religious group, and particularly it's the the Hebrews, the Jews. And so he says in Romans 2, verse 17, Behold, thou art art called a Jew, and what? Restest in the law. And he's going to make it clear to them that just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does that does not make you right with God. You have to be born again because they lack the perfect righteousness of God. He's going to make a conclusion in chapter 3 that all are unrighteous, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that all are under the wrath of God, all are guilty before God. So in chapter 2... And that's that's kind of like a wake-up call to people that say, oh, I was born in a Christian family. Great point. Yep. Yeah, that doesn't make you a Christian. It does not. No, it doesn't. And nobody is born a Christian. Mm Mm-hmm. Number one, right? We're all born in Adam. We all have inherited the sin nature of Adam, original sin. Amen. And are in need of being born again, as Christ told a Jew, by the way, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And so in verses 28 and 29, Paul, still talking to the Jewish crowd, he says, this is a true Jew in the sight of God. Look what he says. Go ahead and go. Read verses uh, 28 and 29 of Romans chapter 2, please. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the leather, whose 
praise is not of men, but of God. Exactly. And so later in the same book, he would say not everybody who is uh, a, a physical Jew, basically, is is really a child of God. It, the, the idea is only those who are saved, right? So back to Revelation, that helps us understand what Christ is saying there in verse 9. They had those that were trying to penetrate uh, the testimony and praise the Lord, unlike the church, the churches of Pergamos and the churches of Thyatira, who whose main fault Christ had with those churches is that they gave a platform to false teachers. The Church of Pergamos to those who taught the false doctrine of of Balaam mm-hmm. to the to the one in Thyatira, they were given a platform to Jezebel, the self proclaimed prophetess, right? And instead of instead of being very strict in that matter and not allowing them to have such positions and, and to exercise church discipline when they should have, right? They were tolerating that, but not so with the Church of Philadelphia, by the grace of God. They weren't tolerating false teachers. They weren't tolerating those who claim even to be Christians who were not because of what they taught, what they claimed to believe. In this case, they didn't know their hearts, but they knew what they believed because of what they would have said, right? Mm -hmm. And so they do lie. And that makes it very clear that this church at Philadelphia was faithful in exposing the counterfeit. And so, interestingly enough, he tells them of a future privileged uh, reality of what they're going to be able to do. He says, Behold, the end of verse 9, Behold, I will make them to come and to worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. I think that's going to happen perhaps at the great white throne judgment, the best I can say there, Uh, very possibly at least I could say. But back to verse 8 again, the end of the verse they had not denied his name. Christ says, you've not denied my name. And so then down into verse 10, he says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Now we're going to talk more on this next week, Lord willing, because some people take verse 10 and they misinterpret it. And we're going to make the point next week that the end of verse 9 to, to know that I have loved thee continues into what's said in verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. You see, the fact of the matter is Christ says, in a practical sense, those who obey me, I love. In other words, how do we continue in the love of Christ? Obedience, obedience to his word. Spirit-filled obedience. Exactly. And so he's not talking about position here. He's talking about practice. And this church, uh, these believers, put into practice what their true essence or true position was by the grace of God. Again, they weren't perfect, but they were faithful. And so the promise that he says in the middle part, in the end part of verse 10, is that glorious promise that he's given to the body of Christ that the church will not ever go through the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation period. And that is a promise. It's not conditioned on anything. In other words, Christ doesn't say to the Christian, if you're faithful and you're not carnal, then I promise I will remove you from the earth through the rapture prior to the 70th week of Daniel. No, that's not true. He's going to remove the entire body of Christ, whether that Christian is spirit-filled or whether that Christian is carnal. And so that we'll get into, Lord willing, next week. So we've kind of worked our way through this. We've looked at the designation. We've looked at the description of Christ. We looked at what Christ specifically commends this church for. Number four, we didn't find a rebuke there because there's not one. And then we'll get into verse 5 a little bit more next week, the exhortation to obey. And we've already kind of mentioned it, hold that fast which thou hast. And then the consequences we'll see come to the point of if you don't, Christian, then it's going to affect the time future when you stand before me at the judgment seat of Christ, when you give an account before me. It's going to affect whether or not you receive a full reward. And we'll look at that also, Lord willing, next week. So, friends, let's close with the same verse we closed with because we have some godly music that we're going to play for you courtesy of the Low-Key Men's Ensemble. And simply go to their website if you want to purchase some of their music. 
which is their whole name, .com, Low Keys Men Ensemble. And this particular song is called The Weight of the Cross. It's from the CD, No Higher Price. But the closing verse is there in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 3. Christ promises the church, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you can join us again next week.
If you've been blessed by our time in the Word of God today, we'd like to hear from you. The church is located just east of the Orlando Fashion Square Mall at 4405 East Colonial Drive in Orlando, Florida. The church's phone number is area code 407 894 If you are attending a church that is a member of the National or World Council of Churches or is identified with the New Evangelical Movement, we admonish you to obey the clear command of Scripture and come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing, saith the Lord. Join with the Bible-believing church for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Word, WTLN, Orlando, home of the 2022 Pastors Appreciation Lunch. October 11th at Metro Life Church. Pastors and men in ministry. It's free. Get details and reserve your spot now at thewordorlando.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 